This is an ABC podcast. So how do we tap into our inner captain to better lead ourselves and others in times of crisis? Today, we'll be teasing this out by looking backwards at history and then forwards at a new connective leadership movement. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong and welcome to This Working Life. My first guest is Nancy Kane, a celebrated historian and Harvard Business School professor. She's also the author of the best-selling book, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. You chose to investigate the lives of five people in your book. Tell me who they are and what threads them together as leaders, Nancy. The five stories in this book begin with Ernest Shackleton and the Endurance Expedition of 1914-1916. The second story is about Abraham Lincoln, who found himself in a very different kind of crisis, uh, it leading the country, America, through the Civil War, 1861 to 1865. The third story related to the Lincoln story, although I didn't realize how closely when I started digging and poking into this story, is about Frederick Douglass, the American abolitionist who did just about as much as Lincoln to end slavery in America. Uh, The fourth story is the least familiar to most global readers, although perhaps Europe is an exception in this regard. And that is the story of a Nazi resisting clergyman named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who became active in the resistance against Hitler and ultimately became a double agent working inside the Nazi government to try and assassinate Hitler in the early 1940s. And the last story, and the only woman in the book, is the story of Rachel Carson, a writer, a biologist, a scientist who published a book called Silent Spring in 1962 that more than any other single action or set of actions by any one person launched the modern environmental movement. So five people, all of whom found themselves in an absolutely unexpected personal crisis. And in that moment, on their knees, or in those moments, because these were long, slow burn crises, each of them learned in different ways, but with plenty of relevance to leaders today, how to make themselves better. And then as they did that, they helped other people do the same thing. And so they not only navigate through these crises, each of them, but they make the world a better place in the process. They move the boulder of goodness forward. Let's go to Shackleton. So you make the point that it's when Shackleton leads by humanity that he really shows up as a leader. I absolutely love this. What did you mean by that? I meant that Shackleton has a mission, a big mission, a really against all odds mission to get his men home from Antarctica. And to do that safely, they're stranded on an iceberg for almost two years. They have no, you know, GPS. They have no text message or WhatsApp to get help. (laughs) And and so he's got to do something almost impossible. He never loses sight of that. And yet at the same time, right, he recognizes that getting them home safely depends really critically on managing his men's energy and their morale. And to do that, right, a lot of what he does is literally man by man to relate to them, to keep the doubting Thomases and the crew members who were very negative on the voyage, keep them close, keep your friends close and your enemies closer so they don't spread contagion, to help those, the the folks that are 
all in to the mission, right? Keep spreading the word that we're going to get home, that this is going to work, that we got to hang in there and keep following the captain, following the boss. And at the same time, to do all kinds of, in very many ways, feminine things to keep the men's spirits up. For example, at the beginning of 1916, they're almost out of food. The men are very anxious and worried that they won't be able to get to open water and sail in their lifeboats to civilization. And Shackleton makes a decision to order up double rations for several days for all the men, even though they're running low on food supplies. It's a very almost feminine gesture to energize his team by feeding them. And indeed, you see in the men's diaries, you know, these notes of despondency give way to things like double rations today (laughs) feel full as a tick. And literally, you see this literary lifting of spirits. And so all of these different levers that he's pulling, right, some of them improvised along the way, man by man, group by group, team by team. You know, it's all about using his humanity to understand these men and at the same time, subtly, directly and indirectly, more obviously, right, inspire them, motivate them, engage them to keep going on the mission. And what's interesting is that this is a very caring and kind action. And in the book, you say that charisma and aggressiveness, two attributes we often associate with important leaders, are not actually essential to making a big, worthy impact. Can you go deeper on that? Sure, sure. So here's what I learned is that leaders come, Lisa, in all shapes and sizes. So Rachel Carson, who is a shy and retiring and very soft person, (laughs) right, who really preferred walking the main coastline to walking the halls of power in Washington, where she was a very senior government official for part of her career. I mean, she turns out to be as powerful as some of the most powerful presidents in world history. So the kind of qualities that it takes to lead effectively for a worthy purpose have much less to do with our stereotypical must-haves like hard charging and decisive. Some of the best leaders understand that one of the most important things you can do in a crisis is sometimes to do absolutely nothing in the heat of the moment. So we want to be careful, I think, about trying to boil courageous crisis leadership down to, you know, four habits or four bullet points or four must-haves because history, experience, all kinds of present-day leaders really give lie to that that idea. And you wrote that Lincoln realised the first action that comes to mind isn't always the wisest. Why is it so important to slow down and do nothing? Um, Because, one, we, all of us, rarely make the best decision in the heat of a high-stakes moment, particularly, right, if the hair, so to speak, on the back of our neck is up, whether we're scared, we're angry, we're frustrated. I mean, just for, by way of thinking about this, imagine typing a really angry email or a really angry text and then hitting set or hitting the little arrow on your phone. We rarely, we rarely think, God, that was exactly the right thing to do. Um, so the first reason is we're too emotionally wrought up, usually, yeah understand either our best interests or the interests of our group, our team, our organization, our mission. So that's the first thing. Second thing is high stake situations and you know are rarely about a single decisive action when all the chips are on one particular, you know, square on the table. 
They're usually about a kind of deafness and understanding how a bunch of different things fit together. And then often in a crisis, how those things are going to add up to not just the next day, but four days from You have to really be able to play a kind of chess game of what might happen if we do that. Very, very, very hard to do if you're acting precipitously or if you're reacting quickly because you think you need to act fast. And then the last reason is because it often takes some time for different dominoes to fall before a leader can make a good decision. Nancy, now this book must be a labour of love because it took you more than 10 years to write it. Can you please share why it took you 10 years, if you don't mind? Not at all. It took me a long time because I was interested in how people who found themselves in a very big deal, unexpected personal crisis, how they figured out how to get better in the crisis. Mm. I was just interested. I was interested for personal reasons. I'd been through... Uh, just a series of crises. I had cancer unexpectedly. I then got cancer again. My husband walked out one day. My father dropped dead. My mother collapsed. And that was the five years of my middle 40s. So I think I was trying to learn from leaders that had not only made it through a series of really, you know, wrenching moments of turbulence or, you know, been in the center of a storm. I was trying to learn how they got better in the process. Not just that they got through, but they didn't get better they didn't stay a victim in any way, shape, or form. And they figured out how to grow stronger, more resilient, in most cases, more loving and more forgiving. And so there was a personal calling to this that I didn't recognize when I began. I've been speaking with historian, author, and Harvard Business School professor Nancy Kane, and we've been exploring the qualities that make a good leader. But what if the most powerful person in the room is not always the leader. It could be someone who just happens to have a seat at the table. Quite literally, uh, this is where my next guest comes in. Behavioural scientist and New York Times bestselling author John Levy. Your latest book, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence, shares the secrets about your highly successful influencers dinners. Can you describe to us, John, what goes on at one of these dinners? Oh, sure. I I think the best description may be that I convince people to come to my house, cook me dinner, wash my dishes, clean my floors, and then oddly they thank me for it. Uh, And I think the important part is that uh, I invite usually about 12 people. The rule is that they're not allowed to talk about what they do or even give their last name. We cook a really mediocre meal together. And when we (laughs) sit down to eat, we play a game and everybody tries to guess what everybody does. And they find out they're sitting with Nobel laureates, Olympic medalists, editors-in-chief, the occasional member of royalty. We just had a prime minister. So let's unpack it a little bit. What's the science and psychology behind this approach, John? You know, when I was, I don't know, about 28, I'm, I'm 41 now, I was really in debt because of college. And uh, I was underemployed, overweight, all like just the stereotype. And I came across this study that asked a really kind of wild question. Is obesity the kind of epidemic that spreads from person to person, like a cold? Or is it a percentage of the population like Alzheimer's? Mm -hmm. And what these two researchers, Christakis and Fowler, discovered was literally life-changing for me. They found that if you have a friend who's obese, your chances increase by 45%, 
your friends have a 20% increased chance and their friends, some you have no relationship to, have a 5% increased chance. And this kind of effect is true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits, literally anything we care about. And so I said, if I want to have a pretty extraordinary life, like one where I get to have an impact, one where I get to succeed, it seems that what really matters is surrounding myself with the kind of extraordinary people that we heard about in the other book, these leaders or thought leaders or titans of industry that, you know, if I want to get fit, maybe I need to hang out with some Olympians. <laughs> and, and that's really interesting that you cook mediocre meals. Is that so that you don't eat too much? <laughs> oh, it's, uh, do you want to know the, the truth behind it? We had a, a well-known author and journalist, and she said, I was expecting a phenomenal meal and decent company. I got the exact opposite. Uh, and the reason that the meal isn't good is twofold. One is a 75-year-old Nobel laureate tends not to be particularly good in the kitchen. And then the second is that I wanted to show people that you don't need money to be able to create meaningful connections. So we literally create these lifelong relationships between people who would have never met over something that only costs a few dollars. And this is really to show that if you know how to invest into relationships and bring people together so that they get a sense of belonging, then you can have a pretty profound impact and some pretty amazing friendships in your life. So we've got to ask you, why do people come to your dinner parties at all, John? (laughs) uh, So I think that there's a few reasons. Uh, The first is that when you look at the lives of highly influential people, they're not what most people expect them to be. Everybody's after something. They're trying to either get their money, their time, their attention, their resources, whatever it is. But nobody needs that stuff. They don't need invitations to another casino-themed fundraiser. But there are certain things that their brains will respond to. For example, our brain is wired to respond to novelty. There's uh, these sections, the SNVTA. It's the major novelty center of the brain. And when it's triggered, it actually entices us to explore and understand. So by doing something that's novel, that stands out as different, then what we actually get is people's desire to engage with us and interact. The dinner is not designed to get them to think that it's the same thing as everything else. And so it becomes more appealing. I think one of the the things that we do that's very different is uh, we don't try to pander to anybody. When people come in, we actually expect them to work. They have to cook. And the reason is that human beings have this thing called the Ikea effect, which is that we disproportionately care about our Ikea furniture because we had to assemble it. And so by getting the guests to invest effort into one another through the cooking process, they actually end up caring more about one another and about this meal that really isn't great. But that's how human beings are. It's the investment of effort that actually makes us care about one another. And extrapolating a bit, John, how do your principles apply to curating things like a good workplace experience? So here's what's really interesting. Google did a a study they called Project Aristotle. They were curious, what's the greatest predictor of team success? And they looked at a bunch of factors. What they found was it's not like IQ or even, I think, tenure. It was uh, psychological safety, the feeling that you're not going to be kicked out of a group if you share an opposing view. 
for human beings, belonging is actually also the greatest predictor of longevity, that we live a long life. And when it comes to giving people a sense of belonging in an age where we're actually lonelier than ever, that's pretty extraordinary. And that really comes through shared effort and also through a willingness to be vulnerable. And have you got a specific story or example about how your principles are used in a workplace? There's a great example that was done by um, Professor at Harvard Business School, Francesca Gino. She was working on a project with uh, call centers. Call centers are notorious for having high turnover at something like 50 to 70%. And they decided to, when there was incoming people, do three training groups. The standard training group that gets the standard training. The second was company-oriented. So they had an extra hour of training, which they had a high flyer from the group, talk about opportunities at the company, how great it is. They learned more about the company history. And after six months, they had a 22% reduction in turnover. And then they had this third group, which was the individually oriented group. And there they were asked questions like, thinking to your previous job experience in a team, what was your best experience that you can bring working here? Or if you were stuck on a deserted island, what skills would you bring to help us survive? All these kind of team-oriented characteristics. And people were given a hoodie with their name on it and the company logo <laughs> on it. And here's what's interesting. They had, I think it was a 32 or 33% reduction in turnover. An hour of intervention, once. But the difference was that they contextualized the entire relationship around belonging. They put their name on the hoodie. They said, you're part of this group. They asked about the things that they cared about, what's important to them. And as a byproduct, it recontextualizes this relationship around, hey, you're one of us and we care. What are your learnings and tips in relation to connecting and creating trust during mm. COVID when we're online, John? Oh, wow. Okay. So the, I think the, there are two things. One, online play games. There are so many great games. We, there's also a whole bunch on my website. In an eight-minute game or 10-minute game, that you, if you take a, a bit of time from a meeting, you can actually make people feel more bonded than uh, they would for months of working together virtually. Right. And the reason is that IKEA effect. The other is there's this quirk of human behavior that we think that trust precedes vulnerability, and it doesn't. It's actually the other way around. Vulnerability precedes trust. And it works in a very predictable four-stage process. So Lisa, if the two of us are uh, chatting on Zoom and you say, John, how are you doing? I'm actually going to use that as an opportunity for us to build trust. I'll say something like, you know, Lisa, I'm a little worn out. Publishing this book has been the hardest project of my life and I'm exhausted. Now, the moment that I've signaled vulnerability, if you ignore me or make fun of me, trust will be reduced. If you acknowledge it and signal vulnerability back and say something like, John, I know how you feel. <laughs> I've been sitting in my closet for months recording stuff. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> Believe me, I've been doing it too. <laughs> so the moment that I acknowledge that we've both shown that we can be vulnerable and we're safe and trust increases, which means that nowadays I look for when people signal vulnerability so I can close that loop or I put out my own signal. And so when somebody asks how I'm doing, I actually answer. 
I think that's one thing. The other thing is put fun stuff in your background so people can comment on them. It gives you a personality. It gives you depth and dimension. Don't worry about talking about your kids or your pet. It lights people up. Um, so let people into your life because they're seeing into your home anyway. Now, Nancy, what has been emerging for you as you've been listening to John? Fascinating, fascinating research, fascinating findings, a sense of the importance of a leader's, again, humanity, empathy, and an ability to do many of the things that John is describing in terms of team. So one of the things that I'm asked over and over again is a question about vulnerability and when can a leader express vulnerability or show it. And the reason it's important, that's a great question, is just because of what John said, that people want to be able to relate to their leader. And if they can relate to the leader on a very human level, which includes that person's vulnerability, then they're, they're going to trust follow, be engaged by, invest in that person more strongly than if they can. John, do you have a build on that? I I would actually love to ask a question, which is, I can't imagine what it was like for, let's say, Lincoln year after year during the war or uh, Frederick Douglass, who I actually also coincidentally wrote about in my book. The amount of pressure, is there any ideas around how they deal with preventing burnout? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, this is something I was just on the phone with 200 doctors talking about this on on a Zoom meeting. You know, the first duty of care for a leader, well, actually for all of us, is a a duty of care for ourselves. And this is so important for people, John, in high-stakes situations because the specter of burnout is real. It's nipping at your heels. And burnout is not just about giving up or, or, or succumbing. It's, it's about even just it getting close to you and you losing the strength and resilience and focus, clear-eyed focus that's so essential to leading effectively. So I like to talk about how for present day leaders, how you know Lincoln understood that he needed it at night to release, to recover, right? And that recovery wasn't just I'm putting away the cares of the office for a couple of hours. It was also, I'm going to sing body Scottish ballads, right? Walking down the hallways of the second floor of the White House or tell really raunchy jokes. (laughs) He really did. This is all really true. He he told raunchy jokes as a way of releasing the pressure and, you know, laughing. He went to the theater. I mean, he took this aspect of recovery, which is critical to the ability to access our resilience muscles, right? And make those muscles stronger. He took it very, very seriously. It seems to me great leaders that I have studied, they were made great, they weren't born great, understood that the higher the pressure, the more important it is literally to devote intentional time on caring for yourself. Mm. I I love this. There's an element of play and laughter. And when you speak to you know, humor researchers, which is kind of like a funny thing to even say. There's a brilliant researcher by the name of Peter McGraw. He actually talks about how it's one really hard to be scared of something when you're laughing. And the second is that it produces a bonding experience between those who are laughing. I think there've even been some theories to why there's so many like Jewish comedians or black comedians, because the social pressure is so high from systemic racism over the generations that there's been this need for laughter in order to cope. Absolutely. I mean, again, I think all of the people I've studied, we found a way to laugh with friends or colleagues or Bonhoeffer and his, the students he was teaching when he was running seminaries, right? And by the way, they're all being hunted by the Gestapo, just to your point about mm-hmm. high pressure, 
the need for release and fellowship in the midst of high pressure situations. And he was very good at telling jokes and playing pranks. And laughter was a very important, if you will, tonic. Something else that I've learned in, and I haven't really discovered it so much in the historical record as I have in my coaching work, bringing the past to present day leaders. And that is, and then I had a neuroscientist tell me that this could be documented in terms of the brain was that gratitude is an incredibly powerful way of recovering, a way of kind of organizing your thoughts and focusing, cutting away from all the noise, but literally practicing, making time to say, I'm grateful for these two things today can be incredibly centering and pathway clearing in the brain for people in high-pressure, high-stakes situations. And I'm grateful to you both for your time and insights today. Historian and Harvard Business School professor Nancy Kane, her book Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times, and behavioural scientist John Levy, author of You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.